Well, good morning, Zionsville Fellowship. I'm grateful to be able to join together um, at the same time again. So we're finishing our series on reintroducing Jesus this morning. And so we've been learning about the real Jesus from Jesus himself. And then next week, we'll kind of take a next step beyond this now and consider what does it mean to live in light of knowing the real Jesus. And so we'll consider spiritual growth. In particular, we'll look at the fruit of the Spirit, um, as what the Apostle Paul calls them. So, But to our series this morning and wrapping it up, so far we've been looking at these seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. So here's some drawings we can put up for um, our help in reviewing that many of you kids drew, so thank you for that. And in particular, we've seen these seven times where Jesus begins a sentence by saying, I am, and then he finishes it by explaining his identity. So he said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And we saw last week, I am the true vine. And so we've actually looked at all seven of these statements so far in this series, but we're going to end this series by looking at one more kind of I am statement that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. Sometimes he doesn't start a sentence with I am. He finishes it, and it's striking when he does. He does this in John chapter 8 several times, actually, and people, when they finally understand what he's intending by saying this at the end of John chapter 8, they pick up stones to kill him. So perhaps this is the most radical of Jesus' I am statements here. So that's the text we'll be in this morning. So grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 8. We'll be looking at the second half of this chapter together. So beginning in verse 30, and here's what we'll see. Jesus in this context is clearing the fog about who he really is. He's been doing this really since the beginning of chapter 7 in this section. And really what he's doing is he's eliminating the possibility of being neutral about him, of having kind of neutral thoughts about him or moderate thoughts about him. You can't just say, you know, he says some things that are good. He's a good teacher, um, but he's not really Lord, Lord of all or Lord of my life. Or, you know, he was a good man, uh, but uh, he doesn't really make demands on our lives that we need to care about. Jesus is not leaving us that option here. And so let's read John chapter 8, verses 30 to the end of the chapter. And in this text, he's leading us to believe who he said he is, which is the I am, which we'll see means he is God himself. So John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham's our father. 
Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and am here. I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, we see in this conversation that Jesus is gently but firmly pressing on people to get clear about who he is and how they will respond to him. He's pressing on their understanding of true faith, what it means to really believe. Uh, he's pressing on their understanding of who they are. He's helping them and us understand who we really are. And he's pressing on their understanding of who he is. So let's ask these three questions here as we walk through this text. According to Jesus, what is true faith? Who are we? And who is he? So first, what is true faith? Now, I'm including this word true here and in doing that, I'm implying that there's a kind of inadequate or false faith, and there's a kind of true faith. You can believe in Jesus at some level without really believing in the real Jesus and knowing him. That's what's going on here. In verse 30, we see that many people believed in him. Uh, you know, in many church services and conferences in previous generations, uh, there would be a bunch of celebration at this point, right? There would be, hey, let's count how many decisions for Jesus there are because people are believing in him right now. We'd expect for Jesus to have the disciples go 
count them up here, but look at how Jesus responds. He challenges them. In verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, so he's talking to those who believed him here, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So here's what this shows us. There is a kind of faith that is superficial and temporary. And there is another kind of faith, true faith, saving faith, that is deep and persevering or enduring and lasting. Jesus is calling on them to have this kind of deep and lasting faith. He says that true faith here is demonstrated by abiding in his word and letting his word abide in you. It's demonstrated by continually receiving the truth of Jesus and being transformed by him. So this is actually a theme in the gospel of John. In this very gospel that, I don't know if you're familiar with the gospel of John very well, if you've spent much time in it, but it's incredible how many times Jesus calls people to come to him and to trust him. In this very gospel where the purpose is for people to believe in Jesus and recognize that this is not about adding up good works to prove ourselves to God or to, to earn anything. It's faith in Jesus is what saves and what leads to eternal life. In this very gospel, John also cautions us against an idea of cheap grace or easy believism. And he does this by showing that Jesus himself didn't consider all faith to be true faith. For example, in John chapter 2, in verses 23 to 25, we read this. Many people believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So many people are believing in Jesus and Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows what their hearts are like. In John chapter six, many people are following Jesus. They view him as a great prophet. They wanna make him king. They believe he is a miracle worker. He can feed them bread. They're happy to call him a prophet. They're following him. They're even referred to here as disciples of Jesus, but Jesus challenges them to understand who he really is and what it really means to follow him. And by the end of the conversation in John chapter 6, many walk away. They stop following him. And this shows that they were disciples in some sense for a while, following Jesus, believing in Jesus, but their faith was superficial and not temporary. Or it was superficial and temporary, so it wasn't deep and lasting. And now here, in John chapter 8, we're seeing again Many people are believing in Jesus, and Jesus does not just accept this at face value and, and give affirmations and assurances immediately for everyone. Instead, he challenges them to ensure that they have deep and lasting faith. True faith is a persevering faith. So if you want to know if you are a true disciple, one of the ways you can tell is by answering this question. Does Jesus' word abide in you? And do you abide in Jesus' word? It's the language he uses here. Do you allow his word to abide in you? Are you persevering in the faith? That's the test. So there's always an important balance here. When someone begins to trust in Jesus, we need to be careful to avoid two extremes. One extreme 
is to, you know, uncritically accept all professions of faith at face value, right? Someone on this extreme would say, yes, of course that person is a Christian. I know for certain because they say they believe in Jesus. And why, why would we ever question that? That can give people, though, a premature sense of assurance. On the other extreme are those who are always skeptical. Uh, some people will just say, you know, yeah, we'll wait and see. Yeah, time will tell. We'll see if it lasts, right? This can be discouraging to people who have truly come to Jesus um, and then often doubt. But the posture of the New Testament is, is this wisdom in, in the situation and often this posture of encouragement with patience. We say, if this person repents and believes in Jesus truly, then yes, they're a believer. And I don't see any reason right now to doubt it. However, we'll also say, and this person needs to endure and continue in the faith. But let's, so let's help them do that. So if you're believing in Jesus, here's a word to you. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, Jesus says, then you're truly my disciples. So what is true faith according to Jesus? Well, in part here, it's a belief in him that continues. It's a persevering faith. Theologians refer to this as uh, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. True faith is a lasting faith. If someone's faith does not endure, it demonstrates that it was not this true, deep, lasting, saving faith. So this conversation quickly at this point moves toward our next question, who are we? In this next part of the conversation, he helps them understand who, who they are. Really, why he's helping them understand why they're becoming resistant to him as he explains who he is more clearly. And he's helping us understand ourselves. The key image Jesus uses here to help us understand who we really are is not pleasant. He says that we are enslaved in a way deeper than we may even think at first. Jesus shows that you can even be religious. You can even in some sense believe in Jesus in that superficial and temporary way and yet still be deeply enslaved and resistant to him. So Jesus said in verse 32, to these people who believed in him at some degree, he said, the truth will set you free. They don't like what that implies. They hear this and think that he's implying that they're enslaved. And that is what he's saying. But they respond in verse 33, we're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Now on a mere physical level, they were slaves, right? I mean, that would be ridiculous if they were denying that they, as the Jewish people, had never been slaves. They're, at the very beginning of their story, was being set free from slavery in Egypt. They were slaves, in a sense, to Babylon. Even now, many Jews in that first century time still viewed themselves as in their own land, but in servitude to the Romans. So that's not likely what they mean here. They actually seem to have a deeper view of slavery. They have not been in spiritual slavery, in a sense, because they're, they're saying they have not bowed the knee to these pagan kingdoms. They are still servants of God, not these rulers. So they remain free in their hearts, kind of like a William Wilberforce Braveheart freedom. No one has been able to take away their true freedom. But it's clear that they're not going deep enough with their understanding of slavery. Jesus says that even here, there's a deeper slavery. Look at verse 34 with me. This is one of the most profound statements about human nature once sin has entered the world in the Bible. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So he says that if you practice sin, 
you show that you are actually enslaved to sin. Enslaved in your heart. You don't have the freedom not to do it. You can't not do it. Now, Jesus is not talking to irreligious people here. People that many people would think, assume he must be talking to if he's saying you're, a, you're enslaved to sin here. He's not even talking to just kind of the outwardly terrible people here, behavior-wise. He's talking to very religious people, those who we just saw even believe in him in some sense, and he says that there is a deep issue that needs to be resolved, that their hearts are enslaved and they need to be set free. This is our deepest problem, and it's what all of us have in common, both irreligious and religious, moral and immoral. This is alarming, and it's uncomfortable knowledge. Jesus is saying that every person needs to acknowledge that their, their default heart condition is opposed to God and truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, we, we keep going on in our sin like an addiction, um, and we need to be set free. We just keep going, we get entrenched, right? We say, uh, just one more and then I'll be done. I won't do this again. I'm sorry, it'll never happen again, right? And it happens again. We can't stop. So Jesus is here blowing up any form of a humanistic idea of unbounded free will, right? Now, it's true that we have a will. We are not robots. We make decisions. We're not being constrained or forced by any kind of external force to make our decisions. We, we make them. Uh, we make them out of our own desires. But that's really the problem. It's with our very desires. I mean, why is it that not a single human being ever, other than Jesus, uh, was able to not sin, lived a sin-free life? It's because we don't come into the world neutral. No one comes into the world with complete neutrality and no influence on their will, as if they can just kind of decide with no, no uh, external or even internal influence on which direction to go. We're all bent toward sin and selfishness other than God. And this very conversation Jesus has with these people about this confirms it. They hate hearing this. They're getting enraged. And in verse 43, he says they can't bear to hear his words. The clearer he gets about who he is and who they are, the more resistant they become toward him. I wonder if you've felt that before even not just with Jesus, but with someone else who's confronting you, even gently about your own sin, in that moment, you, you know they're right, but you dig in and you deny it and you start getting angry with them or even bringing it up with you. Maybe you have a secret sin that, that nobody knows about and you know through experience that you are unable to break the power of it. Or maybe you think you can, um, but if right now you could be honest with yourself, you have to ask the question, why have you not been able to? Because there's something deeply broken in our hearts. And Jesus is saying, this is why I came, to set you free. And he's happy to do it. This is why he came. So he's inviting us to admit our need and to open ourselves up to him. So, And who is he? This is the final question. Here's how the people answer that question. Verse 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan 
which was a racial slur at the time, and you have a demon. In other words, this is getting to be too much, right? We are religious. We like the Bible. Uh, we've even started to believe in you. Uh, but now you're telling us that we have a heart slavery. You're telling us that we're resistant to your words. And if we are, that we don't actually know the one true God, right? If we don't just embrace everything you say, it, it somehow shows that we're resistant to God. This is crazy. You're crazy. And the conversation builds then from this point to this climactic response of Jesus in verse 58. They pick up from Jesus that he, he's implying he was even alive at the time of Abraham. And Jesus responds in verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Now he didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And then they picked up stones to kill him. And I think it, well, it's clear here, it's not because he had poor grammar, right? That he should have said before Abraham I was or something like this. It's, it's because they understood what it meant for Jesus to say, I am. He was claiming a title for himself. And this is one of the strongest ways that Jesus could have indicated that he himself is God. Uh, in Greek, it's the phrase, ego eimi, I am. And it comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament as well. There's several places where God himself refers to himself as the I am. In Exodus 3.14, God was sending Moses to set Israel free from their slavery. And Moses asked God to reveal his name to him. And God said, and it's, it's hard to translate, different translations might have a slightly different aspect here, but it's something like, I am that I am. Or, I am the one who simply is. And so God to told Moses to tell the Israelites, say, I am has sent me to you. So when they say, who sent you, Moses? Who gives you authority to be our leader? Moses is to say, I am sent me to you. Then in Deuteronomy, God said this, see that I am, Greek translation, Old Testament, ego a me, and there is no God except me. And then Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years later, called God ego a me numerous times. For example, in Isaiah 43.10, it says this, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am, ego a me. Before me, there was no other God, nor shall there be any after me. So this is the title of the one true God. And Jesus is saying, I am that I am. I am the one true God. This is why they grab stones, because it sounds to their ears like blasphemy. They know what he's claiming. By the way, it's verses like this that make it entirely um, unlikely, uh, incredibly implausible, that people came in later and added select verses in the New Testament that, that claim that Jesus is divine or God. Because if you, if you went through the New Testament and removed all the places where Jesus claimed to be God directly or indirectly or his actions demonstrated that self-understanding, um, or his actions demonstrated to other people that he was doing the, only, the things that only God could do, you would have to remove something, you'd have to cut off something from every page of the New Testament and stories would be incoherent. I mean, this one certainly would be. They're picking up stones to stone him because they understand uh, what he's saying. They, and so they say, he has a demon. 
But he says he's the one true God. So this is the real Jesus, truly God and truly man. So how do we respond to this? Well, just a few thoughts as we wrap up here. First of all, Jesus does not leave us an option uh, of neutrality. He is gently but firmly leading us to be decisive about him. He's not leaving us with options either. These people are right and he's crazy or he has a demon uh, or he's actually who he says he is. It's hard not to read this and be reminded of C.S. Lewis and how he thinks, uh, helps us think through this in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, if you're familiar with it. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being you know, merely a great human teacher. All right, and nothing else. So if you are uncertain about Jesus, I encourage you to investigate him. Uh, read the Gospel of John, where, where this story is found, uh, straight through. Find out what he claims for himself. Um, who is he? What options does he leave us with? I encourage you to contact a Christian friend, if you have one, and ask them what they think about Jesus in the Gospel of John. And you can discover more about him um, together. You can, excuse me, go to our website and, and note the next steps um, button. We'd love to be in touch with you and help you understand who Jesus is as well. And as you get to know the real Jesus, notice how central the cross is for him. Earlier in this text, Jesus made a striking statement about how we come to know who he is. In fact, he actually said in a way that seemed ambiguous to the people at the time because it was earlier in the conversation. He actually said, it's through the cross that we find out that he is the I am. Uh, verse 28, he said, when you have lifted up the son of man, speaking of himself, when you've lifted him up, then you will know that I am. Translation says, I am he, to make the grammar sound better. But it, it's I am, ego a me. It's this claim. So when will we know that Jesus is truly God? When will that come together? Uh, well, Jesus says when he's lifted up on the cross. And that's incredible. So th these people in this story ended up picking up stones to kill him. And eventually they made good on that desire, right? They did kill him. They did lift him up on the cross. And they did it because he claimed to be the I am our maker, our creator, the true God. But Jesus says in that very death, that's when people will know who he really is. Because the cross shows us not that we have tragically killed a crazy or demon-possessed man, but that Jesus himself came for us to die on the cross for our sins so that 
when he's risen from the dead, he can send his spirit to set us free, to give us full forgiveness of all of our sin and to set our hearts free from the bondage to sin so that we can know and love and follow him. And that freedom begins the moment we trust him and it continues on to eternity, um, increasingly so in this life and then there'll be final and full freedom in the age to come. Second then, after we investigate Jesus and move away from any neutrality about him, um, let's all, as he said, abide in his word. This is what he said a true disciple is. It's one who abides in his word. This is actually a dominant theme in this whole text. Our need to receive the truth about Jesus from Jesus himself. It's all through this text that we read. Uh, to receive the truth about Jesus whole. So we need to hear his words. We need to receive his words. We need to respond to his words. And that's what it looks like to be his disciple and to show that we really are his followers. So individually for all of us, if you do believe in Jesus, you've investigated him, you've come to him, you demonstrate the reality of being his disciple by continually hearing his word, getting clearer and clearer about who he is and responding to that word. True Christians are Bible-saturated people. They hear Jesus' words and they embrace the whole of them, even if it contradicts some of their own deepest desires and thoughts and preferences or opinions. Um, just last night, um, our small group met to talk about uh, time in the Word. We just each shared how, have, how has God's Word been encouraging to us? What have we been reading? How has it changed our thinking or perspective or been challenging or encouraging to us? And it was such a rich time. I encourage you as small groups or as clusters of friends to, to do that from time to time and just share with one another from God's word um, how you're growing, how he's setting you free, how he's transforming you and being encouraged by that. And that's when we can begin to even do this more and more as a church family, to become a word-centered church. And then finally, let's share Christ's word with people. This is what Jesus did for people. He told them about who he was. He helped them get clearer and clearer about him. He did not just come to do good things, but to help people understand him and to not be neutral about him, but to know who he really is and to follow him wholeheartedly. He loved people enough to make sure they didn't misunderstand who he was. And that's convicting to me because I know there's so many people in my life who do not really understand Jesus. Uh, they've heard some things about him, they've learned some things about him, but I know they don't really know who he is, what he claimed for himself, and the joy that's found in being set free to know and follow him. And so we have this privilege then of following in the footsteps of Jesus in making his words known to people. We have a great opportunity to help neighbors and our culture in various ways through conversation and other forms to rediscover the real Jesus. You know, many people in our culture as well are stuck in verse 30. Remember that first verse we read? All these people started believing in Jesus. And many people in our culture have stayed there because their understanding of Jesus has become limited because so many people have kept it limited or they haven't pursued more information. And Jesus here intentionally leads people to get clearer about him so that their, their belief presses beyond something superficial and temporary but something into something deep and lasting, true faith. And so we have the opportunity to reintroduce people to the real Jesus by giving them the Bible, reading it with them, encouraging them to know Jesus. So let's do that together. And what a great opportunity we have in this time where people 
have rhythms that are thrown off, maybe have a, a new longing and hunger to know the God that made them, how to understand the, the brokenness of this world and the goodness of this world. And it's an opportunity for Christians to shine brightly in acts of kindness and service and then to communicate who Jesus is. So what a privilege and a great time to be alive. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for revealing yourself through Jesus. We thank you that your word is clear. And we thank you for being the one who can set our hearts free. For all of those listening whom you have set free, we thank you. We could not know you on our own. And we're dependent on you fully. So thank you for that freedom. And for those who do not yet know you, whom you've not set free, please do that. Even right now, as we're listening, please set hearts free. That we would know and follow the one true for our joy and your glory. Amen.
Well, with that, we are wrapping up our gathering together at the same time, and it's been a privilege to pray together, to sing together, to hear God's word together. We're also under the privileged obligation and joy of being called to encourage one another. Uh, Jesus himself calls us to do this through his word, and so let's do that. Let's reach out to a few people this morning and encourage them, connect with them, uh, reach out to neighbors and friends, and just spend the next couple minutes doing that together. So let's end this time with a benediction from God's word. Now may God himself, the God of peace himself, sanctify us completely so that our whole spirit and soul and body may be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. Go in peace.